Gorbachev to tear down this. That. Welcome <laughs> back, dear listeners and Papa Bear, uh, to the Cold War Show, episode eighty-eight. It's been a it's been a while, it has, Ray. Yeah. Uh, what what have we been doing? Why has it taken so long? I, I can't remember where we've been, what we've done. Oh, <laughs> yes, okay. we yeah. had an adventure. Yeah. Well, I think we should get paid by various tourist boards because twenty-one days. No rain except for like 15 seconds. And the second we leave, a massive forest fire. So tourist boards should pay us to go around to create perfect weather. I don't know. It, it was it was just 21 days of uh, of sex, uh, of limoncello-laced sex bliss. So uh, it's kind of sad to be back. Now, I don't want to say that we started <laughs> the fires in Athens, <laughs> but I will say that, that the night before the fires... Right. Didn't we flick we a cigar were... ash... Uh, cigar off the we roof were, of the building. We were smoking cigars yeah. uh, on a, in a rooftop garden in Athens overlooking the Acropolis oh, and shit. the Parthenon. This is going to be used uh, as evidence. And you were drinking limoncello Copious. straight out yes. of the bottle. Straight, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it was you. I'm not saying it was you. <laughs> I'm not assigning blame. But Thanks, uh, in all seriousness, tr- Tragedy in Athens. Right. We got out just in time. Yeah. Uh, Eighty people, I think, is yeah. the death toll so far. Um, yeah, Mickey, if you're listening, I hope you're well. Yes, please um, take care. Uh, our, our, our local listener in Athens who came and hung out with us on the last night, lovely chat, and a compassionate lover. <laughs> no, so we had a we had a great time. We'll talk about it more, I guess, when we uh, get back to doing the Caesar show. But uh, yeah, we had a great time and uh, yeah. went remarkably smoothly. Um, we had a bunch of people uh, with us. Uh, they were mostly mostly okay. Yeah, Mo- mostly mostly <laughs> we'll get, mo- mostly we'll okay. Get into that. <laughs> I don't want to name any names. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, but mostly, I, I enjoyed spending time with you, buddy. It was yeah. great to just. I mean, there's the most amount of time I think we've spent together. Uh, exactly. Yeah. In one hit, and and it was good. Yeah. It was it was good fun. Yeah. And, but it's good. It was only three weeks because you know sore. So take a break. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get back into the Cold War. All right. <clears throat> um, in our last couple of episodes, we uh, talked about the bomb. Um, we talked about the the fallout, literally, from the bomb, uh, and and uh, the way the Americans uh, hid for decades. That was a little bit Clint Eastwood. The way the Americans <laughs> hid for decades. The um, uh, the truth about uh, the the effects of the bomb, both on the 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 people living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right. as well as the American soldiers yeah. that went in, and they the, the Americans commandeered all of the footage, both Japanese and American, and the photos, and they hid it away for decades. Yeah. Um, where I want to pick up now is in. October of 1945, uh, there was this celebration, Navy Day. Do you still have Navy Day? Is Navy Day a thing in America? I have no idea. I know, I know it started uh, first organized in 1922, you know, the 26th, uh, the birthday of the 26th president, Theodore Roosevelt, who was a big naval enthusiast. Today, 
Teddy! Teddy Bear! Oh, Teddy Bear reminds me of Greek sex. Anyway, so uh, so it's been around for a while, and I guess, you know, the fleet comes to a certain city, dignitaries show up, you, you give these important speeches, and Truman is going to use this as an opportunity to hopefully tell America and the world what's the next thing now that the war is over. Mm, well, apparently, according to Wikipedia, yeah. in the United States, the Navy League of the United States organized the first mm. Navy Day in 1922, holding it on October 27th because it was the birthday of the 26th President, right. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who was a huge naval enthusiast, as you said, former Assistant Secretary of the Navy just before the Spanish-American War of 1898. Uh, it became quite popular um 50 cities participated the next year in 1923 um was pretty big right through truman's era um then uh, in the 70s they figured out that the birthday of the continental navy was actually october 13th uh 1775 and so the chief of naval operations admiral elmo uh zumwalt (coughs) no that's not a name Hi! It's Navy Day! It's Navy Day! Everybody get on a boat! It's a ship, not a boat! Um, They they redefined it uh, as uh, October 13th is the new date of Navy Day. But most importantly, I think it reached its popularity when the um, village people uh, came out within the Navy. (laughs) They had their own theme. So, so, you know, all good things come if, if you wait long enough. Anyway, getting back to October 1945, (laughs) Navy Day, the commissioning of the aircraft carrier, the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, Harry Truman gave a speech, and I have a bit of a clip of that speech. We have assured the world time and again, and I repeat it now, that we do not seek for ourselves one inch of territory in any place in the world outside the right to establish necessary basis for our own protection, we look for nothing which belongs to any other power. The immediate, the greatest threat to us is the threat of disillusionment, the danger of insidious skepticism, a loss of faith in the effectiveness of international cooperation. Such a loss of faith would be dangerous at any time. In an atomic age, it would be nothing short of disastrous. <clears throat> we don't seek any more land because we already <laughs> took as much as we could from the Native Americans and the Mexicans <laughs> and the Hawaiians and the Spanish. Well, if you say uh, it like that, yeah. But we do want all of your money. We want to control your economies. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, interesting point there is he's saying uh, the, 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 the greatest uh, uh, fear is that people are skeptical about international cooperation. So essentially what he's saying is we need to work with the Russians. Yeah. We all need to get along international cooperation. As we're going to see over the next couple of episodes, he changed his <laughs> position on that relatively quickly and we'll... Talk about some of the reasons why. Do you, I just have to ask, <clears throat> how sincere 
at the time of that speech do you think he was, considering he'd already heard from Stimson, which we'll go into later. But I don't know. I was listening to that speech and I was reading um, reading the speech and I was I just couldn't help but the term fake news uh, was running through my head because he can commit the United States, but he can't make anybody else come to the table. And he, as he's going to see, that's part of the problem. I think, uh, yeah, he was on the uh, sort of on the fence at this juncture, right. uh, October 1945. We know that straight out of the gate, he had this whole we're going to be tough with the Russians kind of uh, approach. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that has changed. He still has the maybe idea that they can work together. As we'll see, they, he didn't really have much of a plan right. at this yeah. point. Um, but within a few months... He does have a plan, and the plan is to give Russia the middle finger. Uh, he went on in that speech, apparently, to say that the world cannot afford any letdown in the united determination of the allies in this war to accomplish a lasting peace. No. So he's all about, at least publicly, working with the Soviets to find a lasting peace. But... Privately, um, you know, I think he he doesn't really think it's possible. Right. He hopes maybe that they can do something, but uh, I think like FDR, he wanted a world of uh, open international trade, something as we've discussed, the U.S. economy desperately needed. Yeah. Uh, which which meant global adoption of American style capitalism, but. The Soviets, of course, had just turned back the Nazis, played a pretty big role in the defeat of the Nazis, um, fought them for many years without much in the way of support. They have the world's largest land army, so they're not about to cow-tow down to this American New World Order. And I think Truman is starting to become aware that this is not going to be a happy marriage. What do you think? Yeah, I I think um, Truman... um knows that we can't all sort of, you know, this, this horrid war is over. We're not going to all sit around, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And it's not going to suddenly be a world where bigger nations aren't trying to dominate smaller, weaker nations. That's just the way global politics uh, work. So I think he's starting to be a lot more realistic. And again, you've said this in um, numerous times and over the shows that the alliance between the, was between these nations was nothing more than an alliance of convenience. Hitler is now defeated. Um, even though we did give uh, material and Britain did give material to USSR, they did a very impressive job. They did what no one else could do without very much help from us, even though they suffered uh, immeasurably for it. But yeah, so they're pretty tough. They're still standing. They're not going to take any lip from us. And and Stalin is too crafty to um, fall for any kind of uh, economic plans where he's suddenly going to be in debt to the United States. And, and if we could just stop for a second, I, and I just want to, you and I, to drill down into something, and we're going to do this very care- carefully. Oh, so, something. again, I just want to just, we'll just spend a couple of minutes on this and drill down, but we'll do it in such a way so we don't get a ton of hate mail. We want everybody to completely understand Stalin's position at this time. He 
was not, you know, he, uh, yes, he, in, he invades Finland. He takes some, he takes some territory. But the point is, he's not trying not to be involved in the capitalist war. Well, guess what? The capitalist war comes to him. So all he wants to do is be ready for the next one because he knows there's going to be a next one because he studied history. So whatever he has to do to safeguard that corridor, safeguard his country, safeguard his power, he's going to do. Does that make him evil? No, it's just what you do. And we just want, as we go forward, just for everybody to understand, Stalin, just like everyone else, is reacting to this horrible war and trying not to be trying not to get sucker punched again like he did by Hitler. Yeah. Just want that out there. Just just wanted to put that out there. And 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 the Russians had previously by the Japanese, or previously by the Germans in World War One, and previously by the Japanese in the mm. Sino-Russian War. And it's go go way back by the by the French, if you want to go back before that to Napoleon. Yeah. Um, so yes, he is doing what any national leader tries to do, which is secure his borders and secure his economic future. Yeah. You may disagree with how he went about doing that. That's fine, but that's what he was trying to do. Yeah. Um. Now, there were some people um, in Washington who wanted to go to war, I think, Hell at yeah. the time, yeah. with uh, the Soviets. Let, let's just get it out of the way. Get <laughs> that bandage straight off. Get we're in already there. over there. Get in there, son. Yeah, just get in there and do it. Yeah. <clears throat> but a couple of problems with that. Number one, general consensus was the American people wouldn't support another war. Um, America back then was very different. Uh, than yeah. the America of today. We have a hard-on like for to, war now. Yeah, and it's important, I guess, to understand uh, that uh, America pre-World War II didn't really have a massive standing military right, uh, or, or military budget as, as a component of the economy. They, they ramped up for war, and as we've seen, they had to ramp up. Yeah, we only uh, had a 100,000-man army before we got involved in the war, which is nothing considering the size of our country. Yeah, I mean, I've got 100,000 men in my army, the, the, the Cam Army, or Kamami, as we refer to it. I, will have a sta- I want to save a stable of young men to come behind me. Um, the, the Kamami. I'm aroused. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So uh, 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 the Americans weren't big on war for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, they didn't want to support it. And, and also, you know, I think Stalin had just proven yet again how difficult his country was to invade. Yes. Um, now, maybe the Americans could have dropped a, some nuclear weapons on them, but, you know, the, they didn't want to do that either. Uh, so I think some people in Washington may have wanted to go hard, but majority, it seems, thought they had no real choice but to find a way to work with the Soviet unions. Now, some obviously believed that the Soviets couldn't be trusted, and they pointed to Poland and Bulgaria and Romania, mm-hmm. but... Conveniently ignored the places where the Soviets had kept to their agreements, places like Greece or Czechoslovakia or Hungary. You know, we've talked about the percentages agreement that Stalin uh, concocted with Churchill back in what was it like forty one? I mm-hmm. guess somewhere around that, um, and he'd stuck to that. Um, so could he be trusted? Well, can anyone really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <He>. Right. <laughs> we know that. Particularly with regards to like the Yalta Agreement on Poland, he was pretty canny in making sure that when they were crafting the agreements, there was a lot of white space in there, a lot of movement, a lot of flexibility, right. which he then exploited later on. But it's not to say that he 
broke the agreement. That's why they said he broke the spirit of the old. Ah. It's like, sure, democracy, yes, yes, very good, yes, we will have democracy. Oh, I love, democracy is great. Everybody loves democracy. <laughs> Give me a tea. Yeah. No, so, so what it comes down to is <laughs> Truman and his group don't really know exactly how to deal with Stalin. They don't know what Stalin, how Stalin is going to deal with them. They know they can't go to war with Stalin because, like you said, show me the sales pitch where the American people go, yeah, I'm behind that. That's just not going to work. So the point is, what is Truman, and let's be honest, Burns, going to do about this? Because for right now, they don't have a plan. They're not even sure what kind of plan to form because they don't know what the facts on the ground are yet. So they're just kind of feeling things out at the moment. Like you were feeling me out. Um, it was consensual, I think. Well, <laughs> well you I were sli- you were snoring. You didn't snore, no. So boom, uh, I think we're okay. <laughs> you said one snore for yes, two snores for no, <laughs> and then after the first snore, I just reached in. Anyway, uh, rooftop mem- rooftop love. That's that's the name of my album. So by October 1945, Truman and his inner circle have no grand strategy in terms of the Soviets. By late 1947, two years later, the term Cold War had already entered the political lexicon. Yeah. And and America's containment strategy had already started to be implemented. So a lot happens in this next one or two years. Yeah. Now, we have to remember that at the end of World War II, the United States possessed the world's largest economy by a huge margin. Its GDP was five times that of Great Britain and four times that of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Now, as we've pointed out a lot of times on the show, this is mostly due to the fact that the US was the only major economy in the world not completely flattened by the war, thanks to a couple of big fucking oceans in between them and uh, Europe. Right. And now they also have the bomb. So they've got the world's biggest economy by a large measure. They've also, they're the only country with the bomb. And initially Truman and Burns thought that they could dangle the bomb in front of Stalin as a way to induce him to accept their view of the world. Not necessarily in a do it or we'll drop it right. kind of approach, although I think that was always hanging there. It was I like agree. a hanging chad. Right. Uh, right. Um, it, you know, that, that that's always the unspoken threat. Um, but I think mostly they were like, uh, do what we want and we might share our atomic secrets with you. Yeah. I I don't blame them. For their first attempt, which was to maintain, to a certain degree, FDR's course. Look, we have the military, we have a, we have the economic power. Let's let's negotiate. Obviously, we're going to be kind of harsh with you because we feel like we're the, you know, we're the bigger partner here. We're going to get Stalin to compromise on stuff that matters to us. So we're going to talk to him. It's going to be kind of harsh, but it's going to be a dialogue. And at the end of the day, if he could just give on a couple of things, work with us in Europe, work with us as in Germany as far as forming a government, like you said, maybe we will share or we'll hand over the, the atomic program to an international committee, committee. But Stalin, 
and, and this is just one of those moves where it's utterly brilliant. Stalin has all the cards against him, but he figures out a way how to deal with their rather vague approach to getting him to bend to, to their will. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say he has all the cards against him. He's got the world's largest right. land army, and he's there. Like uh, that was, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I meant from their point of view. You know, they, we've got the economy. We do have a lot of troops. We could get a lot more. Um, and like, but again, the ace, as far as the Americans are concerned, is the atomic bomb, and it turns out that it's not quite the ace that they thought it was. Yeah. So in the first Council of Foreign Ministers conference that took place after the war, which was in London uh, from September 11th to October 2nd, Burns, he's there. He's trying to use a combination of threats and sugar to get (laughs) Molotov to budge on a range of issues. The rapist, yeah. Molotov? Yeah, Molotov, not Burns. I don't know enough about Burns to say. But they're they're dealing with stone face. Wait, wait, wait. No, Molotov's not the rapist. You're thinking of Beria. Beria. Sorry. I'm getting my Russian rapist mixed up. I apologize. Scratch that. Stoneface. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's trying to get him to budge on a range of issues, control o- of Germany and Eastern Europe, and Molotov basically just laughs in his face. <clears throat> and Burns Burns can't figure it out. Yeah. Um, and then within a couple of months, he gets told, Burns that is, by Truman to stop trying to woo the Russians. Ooh. Well, I, I just want to point out something real quick that during the first conference in London that the Russians have their own TARDIS, they go into the future and they see the movie Spies Like Us. And there's a famous line from one of the generals in that movie that says, a weapon unused is a useless weapon. So if you think about it, to have a nuclear bomb is one thing, but unless you actually use it, if you threaten me, but I know for a fact that you're or, or I'm almost convinced that you're not going to use it, it suddenly doesn't matter. And so the Russians do not have to factor that in because they know almost 100% that the Americans can't just willy-nilly drop this bomb on them for no reason. But but you're right. I mean, Burns is trying to get the Soviets to back up on their harsh policies in Eastern Europe. Molotov says no. Work with us with the German government. He says no. He says quit looting everything that where you have your troops at. Molotov says no. So Burns, for all of his brilliance, and this guy has a ton of experience. This guy's been around for decades. Um, I would think only Stimson could match him when it comes to foreign policy. Burns gets absolutely nowhere with uh, Molotov because Stalin probably told him to. And then uh, when Burns gets home, he gets some really bad news from his supposed boss, Truman. Yeah, Truman gets all up in his face. (laughs) Now, to remind people, um, or for casual listeners... um, I love casual listeners. The dynamic between Truman and Burns is kind of interesting. Burns was supposed to be the veep for FDR after he got rid of Wallace. Um, where Wallace at string, and uh, but then FDR fucked him at the last minute, put yeah. Truman in, in on the ticket. Then FBR goes and dies. So Burns is like, "Fuck Truman! Fuck I should be the president right now." Right. Truman so looks like up it. to Burns. Yeah. Yeah, and he does. Yeah, yeah. And Truman looks up to Burns, uh, brings him in from day one uh, uh, of his presidency. Look, mate. Uses him as a mentor yeah. and advisor. Yeah. But within sort of, what has it been now? Uh, FDR died in April. Mm-hmm. By the end of the year, so it's like eight months. 
Uh, it's the relationship is soured right. dramatically. Um, Burns is, is sort of been overstepping his authority, according to Truman. And Truman's just kind of getting sick of his arrogance yeah. uh, and his lack of respect. And I think people are talking to Truman behind the scenes. We, we've read uh, out in the past bits and pieces of, of, of Truman's inner circle saying, yeah, you know, uh, uh, in the back rooms, Burns would be like, fuck this guy. He doesn't know shit. He's as dumb as dog shit. Fuck him and the horse he rode in on. I'm the man. Truman's a dick. Uh, it's a bit like Trump. Trump's in the circle, right? What they say about him. Um, <coughs> Truman goes. So, Truman goes. Am I is the president a bitch? Then why are you treat me like a bitch? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> is me a bitch? <laughs> then why are you trying to fuck me like a bitch, Jimmy? Um. So. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's saying that Burns shouldn't be trying to cut deals without getting approval from him yeah, first. Yeah. It's like Truman has become Stalin and Burns <laughs> has become Molotov. <laughs> That's right. Truman has is, is taken the, that dynamic right. uh, and gone, you know what, I like that. I, I'm, you know, no one does anything without asking me first. So Truman's starting to mistrust and sideline Burns yeah. already. He's only like eight months, eight less, six yeah. months into the job of Secretary of State. Give him a tongue lashing, and not the good kind. Truman's already starting to push him out. Right. And Truman is now starting to play tough with the Russians again. Now, in September, uh, just before the Navy Day uh, speech, the departing Secretary of War, Stimo, yeah. Henry Stimson, suddenly meets with Truman and makes this big, passionate argument for international atomic control. Basically says to Truman, listen, um, we, we need to get this out there. We need to share it with everybody or it's going to be really, really bad if we keep this to ourselves. A quote no. from his speech is, I consider the problem of our satisfactory relations with Russia as not merely connected but as virtually dominated by the problem of the atomic bomb. And his logic is simple. Yeah. If the United States and the Great Britain... Uh, keep the bomb to themselves and don't share it with the Soviets as they had kept it a secret, the development of it a secret from the Soviets and then had used it pretty ruthlessly to end the war with Japan. Twice. If they, can, if they keep that uh, approach, keeping it to themselves, the Kremlin's going to have no choice but to build their own weapon and that's going to lead to an arms race. Yeah. The whole idea of international cooperation is going to disappear. So he felt it was absolutely important that very, very quickly they strike a deal where they share the atomic secrets with the Soviets and the rest of the world. And, and I admire this about Stimson. And again, we know that Truman didn't like him. Uh, Stimson's very sick. He's in his late 70s. But this guy had been a leader, leading figure, leading figure of foreign policy for the United States. He'd served Republicans. He'd served Democrats. So when it comes to foreign policy, this guy knows what he's doing. And so, like you said, he cuts his sleeve, he cuts his arm, and he just pours it all out. He puts it out on there. He puts it at Trump level so even <clears throat> Truman can understand but it doesn't matter. It hits a dead wall with Truman because he is, I guess, for as we're going to see, he's, he's going to go in a different direction. So this impassioned plea gets nowhere. He cut his sleeve. He cut his arm. He cut, cut his the arm. cheese. Is that, what is that? And he, he cut his he's cut his arm and he bled. Something I can't remember the the saying. Anyway, 
And he and he cut the cheese, and Truman was like, "Was that you?" Dude. And he couldn't. Is that, he couldn't listen to anything he said after is that. Is that what was, death was, smells like? I know you're dying, but is there a, is there a, are there windows in the Situation Room? Why aren't there windows in the Situation Room? Who designed this fucking place? And you've got who cut the cheese? Fifteen guys in here, everyone cutting the cheese. Stimson's old. He's sick. He can't help himself. He's incontinent. He had a bag. And and, and and adult diapers. Don't sit on my like bag. he's not even trying he's not even trying to hold it in anymore. He's just letting it go. No. There's no windows in the situation room. There is no champagne in the champagne room. And there's no sex in the champagne room, I think the line is. And we talked about this at Athens. And there's no windows in this whatever anyone tells you, there is no windows. In the Situation Room. Actually, because of that event, that's why it is now known as the Situation Room, because of uh, Stimson's uh, <clears throat> large intestine. We've got a, we we got got a situation here. <laughs> Hurry up, tell me your speech so I can get the fuck out of here. <sighs> okay, okay, international cooperation, good. We need No, fuck that, I'm out of here. <gasps> anyway, around the room. Anyway, uh... where, where were we? So Stimson gave this big, <coughs> sorry, this big speech. Shakespearean and, speech. Yeah. And Truman was basically just uh, cleaning his nails <laughs> with a pocket knife <laughs> through the sorry. whole thing. Yeah. He <laughs> uh, was like, yeah, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Ow, no, really, yeah, huh? Hold on, get yeah. stuck on uh-huh. this. Mm. All right. Mm. Uh, okay. Somebody thanks. open a window. All right, thanks. Well, uh, thanks for coming. golf clap. Golf clap for Henry, uh, Secretary of uh, what is it? War. War. Thanks very much for uh, all of your efforts. Uh, Enjoy retirement. We'll let's uh, catch up for lunch sometime. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah. Now speaking to reporters on the record, Mm-mm. Truman vowed that the United States would never transfer its atomic material and scientific facilities to an international agency and added that if other nations wanted the bomb, they should acquire it on their own hook. Wow. Just get $2 billion. Um, now, speaking to no, speaking to Congress after that, he gave a speech in December. He called for a foreign policy built on military power. So sending Burns over twice to speak with the other foreign ministers was a complete waste of time because not only do they not have a formal policy, but it sounds like Truman's already made up his mind, even though it's not policy yet. And it is not a policy of cooperation. Yeah. So, you know, this whole, um, continuing time, right. Yeah. Truman has gone from, Taking FDR's, uh, inheriting FDR's uh, position, which is on international cooperation, mm-hmm. let's all just get along, even if we have different views of the world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, to the point where he's developing basically the Truman Doctrine. Right. Um, doesn't actually get announced or called that until early 1947 in a speech that he gives to Congress. But um, he is is already by December of 1945, he's already come to this place where he's calling for a foreign policy built on military power. So uh, fill in the blank question, how many different ways can Moscow interpret these events 
and statements by Truman? Mm, one way, basically, <laughs> yes. And we'll get to that in yeah. episode uh, 90, 90 when we talk about the Novikov telegram, which I, 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 I'm guessing most people haven't heard of. Right, yeah. Um, because no one had heard of it outside of Russia until the early 90s when it, was, it came out as part of Glashnost. Um, but the West hadn't heard of it, didn't know about it, which makes it really an interesting document. But we'll get to that in episode 90. So, um, yes, he, Truman's saying um, that it's all about military power for the United States. And he's, he's very clear in this speech. He says the United States would not cooperate with the Kremlin on the question of atomic control. And uh, that's basically it. So, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> Thanks for coming. That's it for... Uh, yeah. But here's the ironic part. Um, for those who have studied American history, before the war, and, we, and we've touched on this, before the war, America was not only isolationists. Uh, we were inward-looking to, to a very extreme degree. And now the war has forced us to um, abandon both of those. But the American people generally are thinking, okay, we're going to bring our boys home. We're going to, we obviously, we want our economy to do well, but we're going to bring our boys home and we're kind of going to go back to the way we were, at least a, a certain percentage of America wants to do that. And that's going to be one of the things that Truman is going to have to later on deal with is he's going to have to, quote unquote, educate or condition the people because the American people, just like everyone else all over the world, the war is over. It was horrid. Hundreds of you know, millions of people died. Let's just go back to the way it was, and Truman's not going to go along with that, so he's going to have to fight the American people. And the part that Cam is probably going to talk about next is, and this, and this for me personally was um, depressing, and I was surprised, but I shouldn't have been, considering all of the stuff that we've talked about, politics and human behavior and the human condition over the years, that Truman was influenced not by grandstand uh, or grand strategy, trying to save the world, trying to make the world a better place. He was focused on, in some ways, his own pocketbook and his own place in history. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we see from him uh, at this period is about domestic politics. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've talked about this when we had... Um, uh, Campbell Craig and, and Frederick Logerville on the show. Mm -hmm. um, there's this period here where we start to see in American uh, domestic politics the tough on communism or soft on communism um, allegations can right. be thrown at politicians. And Truman, being a Democrat, is trying to make sure that this can't be used against him or the Democrats, particularly during the 1946 midterms. Yeah. Um, he, he wants to look as tough on the Soviets as possible to basically disarm any criticism um, of the contrary. Um, so he starts uh, saying, no, we're not going to share. Fuck the Soviets. we got the bomb. They can go fuck themselves. <laughs> Get their own fucking bomb. This is our bomb. Um, I didn't know anything about it until six months ago. <laughs> well, now, actually, yeah, but not. now it's my bomb. Uh, <laughs> but there's another reason. Yeah. Now, in September, um, just as Simpson, Stimson was pleading for this international cooperation on atomic control and Burns and Molotov were meeting in London, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the FBI director, infamous FBI director, 
informed Truman that a massive spy ring operating out of Ottawa had infiltrated the Manhattan Project with Canadian and American spies reporting back to Moscow. Wow. Now, as it turns out, Washington had known about the existence of this spy network since 1942, Mm -hmm. but they didn't realise the scale of it and how far it had infiltrated, particularly the Manhattan Project, until now. Right. Now, Truman, as you can understand, was furious. Yeah. How dare Stalin put spies inside the Manhattan Project? It's almost like he didn't trust the Americans <laughs> to share the knowledge with him. Oh, right. That's right. They didn't share the knowledge with him. But still, he oh didn't God. know at the time that they weren't going to share that he, knowledge with him. He should have trusted me. He should have trusted them to share it with him. Yeah. And then been disappointed later. Up, so up to the point, Truman was furious. <laughs> up until the point where I dropped the first bomb, he should have trusted me more. And and I got to say, my feelings are hurt. That's what Truman's thinking. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But but um, but but Hoover and and I do, and I do want to. We, we'll get into this later. I I, I want to go into to whatever degree we can Hoover's motivation for this, besides the obvious uh, motivation of doing his own job. So so Hoover's report goes a little further, and it says maybe this explains or this helps explain why Stalin is taking such a taking such a cavalier attitude to our requests when it comes to easing up in Eastern Europe or maybe not helping with the government in Germany. Perhaps, maybe, because we didn't really start the program, the Manhattan Project, until 1942, and they were pretty much on it from day one. Maybe they've gotten so much information through their American and Canadian spies that they're about to build their own bomb, hence they'll be our equal, hence our main ace is now gone. So Stalin doesn't have to get give a shit about what we want and he's not intimidated by us and if that's true then this is even bigger than what we think it is you know certainly what we thought uh before this report came out from hoover yeah yeah so all of a sudden it all starts to make sense Mm. to um to Truman why Molotov is basically laughing at them <laughs> right. when they're trying to dangle the bomb as some sort of a... Uh, I've seen <clears> bigger. <throat> yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll tell him, but I don't think he'll be very interested. He's already got one, you see. <clears throat> He's about you know, we will, we will give you the bomb if you get out of Poland. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but but, yeah. but but it's brilliant because if you think about it, Truman and I'm not and Truman's not he's not FDR by a long stretch, but he's like, How in the hell can I publicly rail against the USSR when the other part of the story is that they were American citizens. There's no freaking way he can do that. His hands are tied. So he's angry, like you said, but he can only say so much publicly because there is connections. I mean, these were Americans who were spilling the beans, giving it to the communists who were, as each day goes by, more and more our enemy. So he's angry, but at the same time, his hands are kind of tied as far as what he can say publicly. Hmm. Well, uh, obviously, this would be really, really bad. 
if it got out. Right. Um, oh. You know, the, 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 so if uh, it gets out that during a democratic administration, yeah, <sighs> Soviet spies had infiltrated. Uh, not just various places in the government, but the Manhattan Project itself. Right. Yeah. If this comes out, yeah. uh, particularly in the lead up to the midterms, yeah. it's going to look very bad, especially as many of the spies were American citizens yeah. that had connections to leading Democratic Party figures in the State Department oh, and elsewhere. shit. The damage to the Democrats, Truman's party, and his own political reputation could be devastating, um, particularly if, you know, there's sort of talk about Truman giving away America's atomic uh, secrets to an international agency. Oh, that's right. Shit. That's even turning – that's turning it up to 11. It's taking a bad situation – and making it even, I, I could just imagine the Republican candidate, American people. I just want you to know that the Democrats spent two billion dollars developing a bomb, and the Russians stole most of the cigarettes, so they're going to build their own bomb for way, way less than two billion dollars. Thank you, Democrats. I mean, yeah, yeah. how would you not lose uh, the midterms and eventually the White House? Yeah, yeah, it would be bad, but fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> Truman has such a tight grip. On, on America, okay. that there's no risk of this getting out and becoming public knowledge. Thank God. Whew, okay. Except, <laughs> as it turns out, <laughs> yes, he didn't have such a grip, but we'll get to that in a second. So as far as the American people are aware, the Soviet Union is still an ally. Right. Uh, and the administration's plans for the post-war world are still completely up in the air. Now, again, I just—I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, we, this is important. As 1946 opens up, as far as the average American goes, the war is over. Yay! Our boys are coming home. The Russians, yeah, they're not like us, and they talk funny and they dress funny, but they're tough. They stood up to the Germans, and together we beat the Germans, and we're allies, and uh, you go your way and I'll go mine. So as far as the American people are, are concerned, the Russians are just the people over there. We won the war together. They have no idea what's going on. And as far as they're concerned, they're not really threatened by the idea of Soviet Russia. Hmm. Just, Just... Just keep that in mind. And I can't remember exactly when Stalin was Time's Person of the Year or or, or, or was something. He, he basically was on a bunch of magazine covers, and, and he was built up by the Soviet and the military governments because, you know, when the war first started, we're allies. But just keep in mind, is that as far as the average American is concerned, they're, they're different from us, but they're allies. The Russians are okay people in our books. They don't know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. They were they are friends. Yeah, they helped us defeat the Nazis. Yeah, they're part of the good guy team. Yeah, they lost a lot of people in yeah. the process. Exactly. We love the Soviets and and Joe Stalin, such a cheery fellow, <laughs> big happy smile, big Uncle Joe. teddy bear, Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe, yeah. big teddy bear. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, going into early nineteen forty six, um. 
You know, there's uh, still sort of a lingering suspicion of American internationalism, both in the Democratic and the Republican parties. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this, um, there's still this idea in America that they should be isolationists, stick to their own knitting, not right. get involved yeah. in trying to run the world, which is sort of seen as a one of the a very European mindset, part of the problems that have led to World War One and World War Two. America should just stick to its knitting, keep doing what it's doing. Right, head down. And fuck, you know, America first, make America great again, <laughs> fuck the rest of the world. Right. Um, That's true. Uh, you know, particularly they're, they're sort of wary of Great Britain and they want to reduce the power of the federal government now that the war's over, yeah, bring back. the budgets back down, right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there were many liberals in the Democratic Party uh, led by... Henry Wallace, mentioned him before. He was the original vice president under Roosevelt for much of the war. Mm-hmm. He's now Truman's Secretary of Commerce. Right. Uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, now I'm doing your thing. <laughs> Roosevelt <laughs> appointed Wallace to be Secretary of Commerce in January 1945 yeah. um, sort of as a consolation prize for <laughs> fucking him over on the vice presidency. Thanks. <clears throat> and he's still in there. He doesn't last very long, but he's, he's, he's still got the job. Um, he and other liberals are pretty unhappy about the increasing tensions between the Soviets and the United States. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's demanding that Truman honour Roosevelt's vision for a grand alliance to keep the post-war peace. And there were also some Republicans who argued that the Truman administration was slow to respond to the Soviet threat as they saw it, wanted him to be tougher. Um, But all of this is happening without the general public uh, and most of the politicians, I think, knowing about the Soviet spy ring. And if if I could real quick, a couple of minutes ago we were saying, or at least I, and I won't speak for you, but I was disparaging on Truman because – for all of these lofty ideas that are out there about freedom and independence and nation states having their own say, Truman's making some very localized, some very self-serving decisions. Well, j- just to be fair, to be fair and balanced, the Republicans are doing the same thing. Every time they bash Truman about not being tough enough on the on the Soviets, they're just doing it just to, just to court uh, the voters. They don't really care either. They're not They're not thinking about world peace or anything like that. They're just trying to get the, the Congress back. They're just trying to get the White House back. So no, they're no better than uh, Truman is. I just wanted to give uh, equal time to both. Even though we just had this horrific world war and Europe is devastated, these Americans and Congress and these politicians, all they care about is winning or keeping their position. That is pretty much what they're concerned about. Hmm. Well, at the end of the day, I think that's what everyone's concerned about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I at just, the end of the I just day, everyone's... Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I just My, did, I, Most of us. Right. I yeah. just didn't want you to think that I was bashing on Truman on the Republicans. And by the way, since we've stopped for a second, did you know that Henry Wallace has a degree in animal husbandry? He started a corn company, got rich, and like Augustus, when he was Secretary of Agriculture previously, he set up a program to buy food when it was in surplus and sell it when times were harder. So again, this guy, he seemed like a pretty decent guy, and I'm guessing now he doesn't know everything that Truman knows because he's like going, hey, 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 hey we should be getting along with Soviet Union. What's all this? What, what are all these statements about standing up to them? So again, he's, he's calling Truman out on, the, on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in uh, February 1946, uh, the big secret gets out. Dun, dun, dun. Um, there's a syndicated com- col- col- columnist. <laughs> I can say that word this hour of the morning. A columnist called uh, Drew Pearson. Right. Um, and uh, he puts it out there. Now, a source, an unnamed source... Wink, wink. ...in the American government... <laughs> um, <laughs> ...leaks right. to him the whole Russia spy ring story. And he runs it. Um, I, uh, I have uh, a copy of this uh, story in front of me. This is from... This version's in the Pensacola News Journal from Pensacola, Florida. Nice. My, my favourite brand of cola, Pensacola. Right. They still had the cocaine in it. Yes. Still to this very day. Good you stuff. want cocaine in your cola. You want real Pensa cocaine. You get a, get a <laughs> bottle of Pensacola. Uh, it says, uh, Soviet collaborators in Canada to be tried. Uh, it isn't being published in the Canadian papers, but high Canadian officials have been trying for weeks to make up their minds whether to hold a public trial of certain Canadians charged with conspiring with the Soviet government. Mm. Amazing evidence regarding these officials came to light when a Russian agent in Canada was about to be transferred back to Moscow and gave himself up to Canadian authorities. One day after he was taken into protective custody by the police, his room was entered, presumably by other Soviet agents, and made a shambles. Before Prime Minister Mackenzie King finally decided to try the Canadian officials charged with Soviet collaboration, he came to Washington and discussed the entire matter with President Truman. Later, he referred the question to Foreign Minister Ernest Bevan in London. So uh, Mm. the story gets out there. It's uh, low uh, on details, light on details. Right. Um, But uh, there's also some stuff about Wallace here, Uh, Secretary Ike's resignation has now focused the spotlight more than ever on Henry Wallace and increased speculation that he will be the next to leave the Truman cabinet. Mm. I almost said Trump cabinet. They're just out of habit. Right. Though most people don't know it, the cold <laughs> fact is that Truman and Wallace get along very well together. Really? Yeah. No, they didn't. They've been at odds on certain issues, but they've always been able to sit down and work things out with Wallace usually bringing Truman round to his point of view in the end. Mm. Most important single issue on which Wallace and Truman split was the atomic bomb. When the president first began making off-the-cuff statements about how the United States would keep the secret of the atom bomb and place it in the hands of the military, Wallace disagreed with him vigorously. It so happened that Wallace knew more about atomic energy than any other cabinet member Probably as much as anyone save the top scientists because of corn. Er? I'm I'm just making up that last bit, but um, <laughs> because I, of animal husbandry, know. because of his degree yeah. in animal husbandry. Yeah, yeah. Animal husbandry and atomic science <laughs> go together. Most people don't realize it's a double major. That... <laughs> <laughs> so Pearson, um, who was Pearson's source? Ray, who do you think it was? Um, the vacuum cleaner, a uh, uh, Hoover. But we, I mean, I, I, I don't know how much you want to go into, but do you think it was Hoover? What was his agenda? Was he trying to help Truman? Was he trying to hinder Truman? Was he trying to steer events based on his own beliefs? Um, what say you? Yeah, well, true. Uh, sorry, Hoover obviously was a virile, uh-huh. uh, anti-communist. Right. 
and uh, the, the more fear uh, he could build uh, up around the commies are coming, right. the reds are coming. <laughs> The better, the better for his uh, agenda and empire. Uh, you know, the building up the FBI, uh, getting more men, getting more budget, etc. Uh, etc. Et that sounds familiar. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the Canadians confirmed the story a couple of weeks later, and there was near hysteria <laughs> in many papers throughout Washington during the second half of February. Yeah. Um, so. Give me a second. I'm going to try and uh, read one of these stories mm-hmm. to uh, give you an indication. Yeah. Here's an example. Here's an article from uh, March uh, 1946. This is in the the Times of Munster, Indiana. Mm-hmm. The Hammond Times, to be specific, of Munster, Munster, Indiana. Uh, Soviet Russia's spies in Canada partially fulfilled Moscow demands for information on radar, atomic research, and a new explosive Ooh. in the spring of last year, it was revealed today. Documents produced by Igor Guzenko, Soviet code expert at the preliminary hearing for Fred Rose, communist member for parliament charged with relaying secret information to Russia, disclosed that agents were asked to concentrate on top secrets but were also asked to check on Canadian military strength in Vacatier, Quebec. The documents called specifically for information on a rush job of radar application for a battleship for the Pacific. It was not disclosed whether the battleship was American or British. Mm. It also tipped the Canadian agents that Badeau, identified as Guzenko by scientist Durford Smith, tells of nuclear research of bombarding with atoms at the University of Montreal. Guzenko identified handwriting on the documents as that of Colonel Rogov, assistant Soviet military attaché in Ottawa, etc., etc., etc. So it, it's out there. There's news, spies, Soviets. Our allies. And, of course... Yeah. Yeah, this is going to help quickly turn American citizens against the Soviets. Um, and, you know, yeah. it, it, this, <clears throat> this kept building. So this kept building, obviously, reached its heyday under McCarthy in the early 50s, but the political impact on Truman's foreign policy right. was immediate. Yeah, and like you said earlier, I mean, this is pretty much going to eliminate almost all options for Truman, but one... He has now got to double down on being tough um, on the Soviets, not only because the Republicans, but now the American people are turning against the Soviets. If he wants to survive, he's got to stay ahead of the uh, of the wave, and that's exactly what he's going to do. And not only did he take an, a deal with the Russians off the cards, <laughs> he also pulled the pin on the nuclear deal with the British. That's fucked up. Something that Roosevelt had promised Churchill in 1944 he goes, no, no, now we're not even sharing it with Great Britain. Fuck the British. <laughs> it's all mine. Well, it's mine, all mine. <laughs> Jesus. I'm trying to remember exactly, but we, but uh, the United States did get some uh, information from the British, British theorists. So, you know, they did help us. They, it was agreed between us and them that they would give us all their information and we would work on it because we have the money and we're not being bombed like they are. And yeah, he just goes back on his deal and says, yes, you you pretty much helped us with this, but no, we're going to keep it for ourselves because we don't trust anybody. I don't trust anybody. So then as almost as if on cue in a public (laughs) speech on February 9th, right. While all of this is breaking in uh, the uh, United States, people are going, oh, my God, Soviet spies. 
Stalin yeah. gives a speech where he announces that his government would maintain its wartime policies of state control over the economy and would continue to divert maximum resources towards heavy industry and military production. Oh, he's throwing he's throwing the, the red flag down or whatever the whatever I'm going for. Yes. <laughs> red the red something bull about cape <laughs> thing. It's only hour one. I have no excuse. No, I was thinking the slap with the glove across the face, the the red thing with the bull, yeah, but, but who knows. But it's yeah, but it's not really. I mean, <clears throat> this isn't anything different from what the Soviets have always done. And he didn't say it had anything to do with America. Right. He just said, you know, we're gonna keep a control over the economy. Basically saying we're not we're not weakening to the American view of capitalism. We're going to maintain state control. We're going to continue to build up our military. And as you said before, yeah, makes sense, right? <laughs> Just been invaded second time in his lifetime, third time in memory, right? Uh, recent memory. He's like, yeah, well, we're not going to take our eye off the ball now. We got caught unawares yeah. last time by Adolf. <laughs> we're not going to do that again. So we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. Nothing's changing. Uh, back to same old, same old. Uh, we're going to, you know, keep building communism or socialism, uh, socialism in one country, and uh, build a big fucking army. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he also talked about, um, you know, that the world was continuing with its uh, capitalist imperialism. Yeah. That... Uh, There's going to be another war. He, yeah. He agreed with Lenin's basic view that uh, late capitalism would lead towards unending conflict and war around the world. And, hmm, gee, he was right on that. Um, and that the Soviet Union wouldn't get caught up in it. Um, right. Wouldn't find itself, as it did in 1941, in a capitalist war not of its own making. That bit he wasn't so right on. But... The you know he said look until the global triumph of communism the world's going to be dangerous we we are going to be threatened yeah. by the capitalist imperialist forces um, this wasn't anything new that we've we've talked about this a million times over the show this was basically a Marxist Leninist view of you know what would happen to any sort of early socialist slash communist experiment the the capitalist imperialist forces would try and shut it down because it's anathema to their view of the world and that they needed to defend themselves. And uh, unfortunately for the Soviet citizens, it meant that uh, any domestic reforms or prosperity would have to wait because they're going to be sinking all of their money into guns and bombs and soldiers and stuff right. like that. But uh, two quick points. For those of you who think that's bullshit, here's the other part of the equation if you need more evidence. One, France is going to be rebuilt by the Americans and by the British to a certain degree, and France did invade um, Russia. And two, Stalin wanted Germany not only dissected into four or five or whatever different countries, but he also wanted de uh, deindustrialized, and that's not happening. So in some ways, Germany in the future could still be a threat. So again, it makes sense for this guy to go, we're going to keep our army. We're going to keep them here in Eastern Europe. So that way you can't get through that corridor of Poland that has been used time and time again. This is very real for him. And the other part of this is that you get the sense that, um, 
as long as there's some kind of either crises or perceived crises, Stalin can keep his policies. He can keep the uh, his thumb down on the people and control everything. And we all know Stalin well enough to know that he likes having control over as much of his own country as he possibly can. And maybe this just gives him, I don't know if he needs it, but maybe this gives him just another excuse to keep that kind of control over over Russia. I'm sure you're right. I'm yeah. sure it does. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up that episode. I'm going to read a review. This is from Australia. Uh, the, the name of the author is Diabolic Scheme. <laughs> Uh, the title of the review is, if you're reading this, I'm probably already dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my, <clears throat> I'm going to do this in my uh, podcast uh, 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 drama oh, voice. do it. <clears throat> Give it to me. <clears throat> Give me some atmospheric music if you can, Ray. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Let's never do that again. <laughs> My phone was damaged during the crash. Internet reception comes and goes as our tiny orange raft gets smashed by the waves. The wind and rain are relentless. The three of us are huddled for warmth, soaking and shivering. There were four of us when we watched the plane sink beneath us two nights ago. Paul must have fallen over. The other two blame me. But they don't complain about one less mouth drinking what's left of our water. What little conversation we had is now complete silence. Only the roaring wind and crashing waves. My phone is frozen on the page for the Cold War on iTunes. Cam and Ray speak to me. Our water won't last. Maybe two, definitely not three. Mike's already so sick it would be a mercy. <laughs> Great podcast. Send help. <laughs> that is awesome. That was awesome. <clears throat> wow. The most original. Wow. The most original. Yeah. 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 Diabolic Scheme, send us an email with your uh, postal address and, and uh, um, we'll send a token of our uh, gratitude. And we want you to write admiration. The f- yeah, the first season of our Crime Noir um, uh, yeah. show that we're going to do. So, yeah, good on you. Detective novel. Detective, there we go. True crime. Right. With you and me as uh, detectives dicks. solving. As cold, pr- private cold dicks. <laughs> Cam and Ray, private dicks. That's what it's going to be called. Steve Ellis is going to turn it into a graphic novel. <coughs> and, uh, and a certain Cam production Ray's. company is going to Cam make it into it. Yeah. Hey, shh, oh. shh, shh. Cam and Ray, private dicks. Mm-hmm. That's what it's going to be called. Um, <clears throat> uh, we'll be back uh, next time with uh, more of 1946's. Oh, by the way, I want to... I want to Shout out to Martin Darlington, mostly because I know he doesn't listen to the show anymore because he told me that when he took us out to dinner in Doha and Qatar on our way back. Bastard. He said, I gave up on the Cold War. I've been paying you for like two years. You still had not got to the Cold War, (laughs) so I gave up. And I was like, well, you're paying for dinner, motherfucker. That's right. And he did. You're going to pay either way. So I'm giving him a shout out. Thank you for picking us up from the airport, Martin. Martin. 
and uh, taking us around and, and, you know, being nice to Fox and my, my wife and my mother. We had a great time. It was great to see a little bit of uh, Doha. We were only there for a few hours, but it was lovely. Uh, but I'm saying all of this nice stuff because I know you won't hear yeah. it. And uh, that's the way I like to give my compliments <laughs> in secret. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. 